This is The Guardian. Today, how dangerous is it to live in a damp, mouldy home? It's disgusting. It's ugly. But it's not that uncommon. Black speckles of mould can be found spreading across the walls and ceilings of thousands of homes in the UK. Yet recently it's become horribly clear how dangerous it can be living in damp, mouldy conditions. For one little boy, two-year-old Ababishak, it has already cost him his life. Uh, we've been uh, awaiting the results of a coroner's inquest uh, into the uh, death of Awab Ishak. Uh, the ruling is that he died of a result of uh, severe respiratory condition caused due to prolonged exposure to mould uh, in his home. For others, the fear of what mould is doing to their health has become all-consuming. So they deliver oxygen tanks two or three times a week. I've got a huge machine next door, which is an oxygen concentrator. I also have to do my inhaler. I've, I've had to set an alarm on my phone for all my medication. Michael Gove, the Minister for Housing, insists this must be a moment that brings change. Well, it's already the case that this tragedy has shone a light on uh, what needs to change in social housing. We're bringing forward legislation. That legislation will make sure that the housing associations who are responsible for social housing are held to account. This tragedy should never have occurred. For Jane, it may already be too late. She's now living with a potentially terminal lung condition and she's fighting a legal battle to help people like her. So what should, what's the message to Michael Gove? Oh, gosh. Well, how about supporting my case and setting a precedent? Or doing something to enable people in this position to make claims? Because I'm fully of the opinion that unless they get hit in the wallet, nothing's going to be done. She's not alone. As energy prices soar and people find it even more difficult to keep their homes warm and dry, Mould and damp is only set to get worse. But what can be done to protect people living in these grim conditions? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, will the tragic death of two-year-old Awab Ishak prove to be a defining moment for the housing sector? Rob Booth, you're The Guardian's social affairs correspondent, and you've recently been covering the story of one little boy, Awab Ishak, who died at just two years old. Before we talk about that, can you tell me a little bit about him and his family? Awab was, as you say, two. He was a, a happy little boy who lived in Rochdale with his his mum and his dad. And just like any two-year-old, he liked being with his parents, Faisal Abdullah, with his father, and his mum was Aisha Amin. Uh, they remember him as full of smiles, full of life, and even as a two-year-old, full of laughter. Faisal Abdullah had come from Sudan in 2016 as an asylum seeker, and he'd got himself a job at JD Sports in Rochdale, 
and it was allocated a flat at the freehold estate, which is looked after by the Rochdale Borough-wide Housing Company, which is a, a landlord, basically, a social landlord. A couple of years later, Aisha Amin, his wife, joined him from Sudan, and it wasn't long until they became pregnant with Awab. Rob, when did the family first start to notice there was something wrong with Awab? Awab was born prematurely, but not so prematurely that his development was impeded in any way and there were no concerns about him. But the thing was that throughout most of his life, his young life, he had a constant runny nose, he had a cough, and he had throat infections. These are the sort of things that look like common cold symptoms, but they didn't turn out to be. And he spent a lot of his time going in and out of the GP surgery with his mum and dad, and they were trying to deal with these problems, but they didn't realise how serious they were. So what was going on? Well, before Awab was born, in 2017, his father had noticed mould in the flat and he had flagged it up to the landlord, which had told him that the best thing to do would be to paint over it. Now, Awab Saad did that and it's since become clear that he didn't understand that there was any need to put any kind of anti-mould treatment or any kind of chemical treatment on it. So it didn't really have any effect and the mould kept growing. And so how much of a problem did it become? The mould persisted and it kept being a bigger and bigger problem. And towards the end of 2018, Aisha Amin, um, Awab's mum, heavily pregnant now with Awab, there's more mould and the family requests to be rehoused because of it and makes a, uh, prepares to make a formal application. Awab's born... And then in May 2019, they do apply to get out. But still, the problem gets worse. In early 2020, there's a leak in the bedroom, bringing in more damp. So now you've got a leak through the bedroom, you've got mould in the living room, and you've got mould in the kitchen, the black spores that are all over the white walls. A repair team comes out to check out the bedroom leak, but nothing is done. Come June 2020... Aisha is three months pregnant with a second child. Mm. And at this point, the concerns have got so much that the family have decided to instruct solicitors via one of these claims companies to make a disrepair claim against the landlord. And that precipitates the landlord to come round and check things out. And sure enough, they find mould in the kitchen and in the bathroom, as has been persisting for a long time now. Mm. Health visitor comes and sees the mould. There's another baby on the way. And that health visitor was so concerned about it that she then writes to the landlord, Rochdale Borough Wide Housing, explaining her concerns about the mould and Mm. its potential damage to the children's health here. So what did they do then? What happens next? Well, the landlord sends around a repairs manager just a few days later, finds the mould. But the view at this point from the landlord's side seemed to be that it was to do with the family's lifestyle. Right. How does that translate? This is something that happens a lot in social housing and also in um, private rented housing as well where landlords address mold problems by saying well it's to do with the fact of that you're not opening the windows that you're you're bathing too much or there's too much steam coming off your food and in this case there was talk about them their, their bathing habits and their cooking techniques as being issues that were precipitating the problem in fact there was a problem with the ventilation system And what we later find out, of course, is that the lifestyle issues were nothing to do with the cause of the mould. 
And then the landlord has this policy of not fixing anything until the solicitors agree because they're involved in some sort of legal action. So Awab's coughing fits around this time are getting really bad and they would mm. sometimes last for two or three days, oh, his wow. mother said. And they got so bad, in fact, that sometimes they felt that they couldn't even take him out of the house. So you can imagine the situation. They don't feel like they can take him out, so they end up having to keep him in. Which the very sense. place that mm. they fear is is causing him to get ill. They said that they felt absolutely trapped at this point. And so what happened to Awab then? So on the 19th of December, 2020, this is, he got so ill that his family took him to the Rochdale Urgent Care Centre. He was then transferred to the Royal Oldham Hospital, where he was treated for croup. His breathing was really noisy and wheezy. He had what was described as a barking cough. Aisha was with him and she showed the doctor pictures of the mould in, in her home. You could tell that she was joining the dots here. So they treated him and they discharged him the following morning. But unfortunately, his condition worsened and he was taken again to Rochdale Urgent Care Centre two days later. And then he was moved urgently to Royal Oldham Hospital. And it was during that transfer between the urgent care centre and Royal Oldham Hospital that he went into cardiac arrest. And at the hospital, he was pronounced dead. It's so devastating, and it seems like it could have been so avoidable. Rob, how did all of this come to public attention? Well, the case became the subject of a coroner's inquest. As that inquest progressed, it became increasingly clear, really through the photographs, actually, I think, of the mould on the walls mm -hmm. and the photograph of little Awab himself, that this was something that was going to cut through. Senior coroner Joanne Kersley, who was running the inquest, she ruled that two-year-old Awab died from prolonged exposure to mould in his family's flat. And she said that his death should be a defining moment, in her words, for the UK's housing sector. Wow. Rob, how did the family deal with that? The family were very angry and emotional after the coroner made that statement. They spoke through their solicitors and said that they just couldn't get their heads around the fact that despite all of the complaints, Rochdale Borough-wide housing did absolutely nothing. And then they said, we don't feel... Rochdale borough-wide housing actually cared about us. And that was something I think that probably resonated amongst quite a few social housing tenants. Mm. But then they went a bit further and they said that they were victims of racism and mm. prejudice in yeah. what had happened. And it, it wasn't a wild claim in any way. And this whole thing about the lifestyle issues played into this idea that the landlord is in some way seeing them as a problem. Um, We're living differently to other humans right. in some way. Absolutely. The family said, we have no doubt at all that we were treated this way because we are not from the country and are less, less well aware of how systems in the UK work. Stop discriminating. Stop being racist. Stop providing unfair treatment to people coming from abroad. Stop housing people in homes you know are unfit for human habitation. 
It was strong. Well, you can't get more clear and more stark than no, that. No, you can't. Rob, do we have any idea of the figures of the number of people in the UK thought to be living in damp, mouldy conditions? This isn't a small problem. In 2020, the English Housing Survey found that there were about 445,000 homes in England that had condensation and mould problems. Of those, 116,000 are social housing. So if you think about a, a, you know, a normal household, that's at least a quarter of a million people mm. living in homes that are known by the government to have condensation and mould problems. How dangerous is it to live in a house with mould? By, by which I mean, is it the amount of mould and the length of exposure to it that can cause serious illness or death? It affects people in different ways, but there's a host of medical problems that damper mould can cause in people. There's particularly people who are sensitive to the allergens that the moulds produce. So there's common ailments that are caused by this, like sneezing, runny nose, red eyes, skin rashes... But moulds can also affect the immune system and trigger more serious problems, um, including serious asthma attacks. Well, in this case, Awab's mum and dad were living in social housing and they didn't have the option to move. Rob, how are people being allowed to live like this and who do you hold to account? Well, that's a very complex uh, issue, really, I think. You know, social housing is owned by registered social landlords it's their responsibility under law to carry out the upkeep of these properties and they're supposed to be fixing problems when they're alerted to it. There is a law that came into force in uh, March 2019 to make sure that rented houses and flats are, quote, fit for human habitation. Mm. Um, and damp and mould are among the faults covered by that. And if flats and houses aren't fit for human habitation, then you know, tenants can take their landlords to court. You know, there's a whole process here. But the thing is, the system isn't really working properly, partly because of the biggest structural things that are going on here with social housing. You know, there's been a long period of um, relative underfunding of social housing. Social housing rents are very low and social housing landlords need to make money so they will tend to or have tended to focus more on what's called affordable rent which is higher creates a higher revenue and so there's become a sort of imbalance where the social housing this very cheapest form of housing is not a sort of priority for the um, uh, registered social landlords so when it comes to repairs you can see the incentives to cut corners are built into the system Listening to that, I still can't help but think it is utterly mad that it is, it, there aren't any regulations to stop or to get landlords to make repairs that could damage someone's health. The need to make a profit surely isn't in conflict with creating livable conditions, no matter how hmm. low the rent is. There are regulations that require them to make sure that the phone, uh, homes are fit for human habitation. Part of the problem is really is that that they can still get away with not doing that because the system of regulation hasn't been robust enough. And that's something that 
a reform of that has been in the works since the Grenfell Tower disaster, and it remains in the works. It's still not been brought through. At six minutes to one this morning, London Fire Brigade received the first of many calls to a fire in Grenfell Tower that you can see behind me. The first crews were on scene in under six minutes and found a rapidly developing fire. As you can appreciate from looking at the building now, this has been a very serious and a very complex fire. So that disaster happened in 2017 when there was concern about tenants' voices not being heard when they were raising issues about safety. And now here we are in 2022 and the piece of legislation that's supposed to strengthen the social housing regulation still hasn't gone through. It still took four days of Rochdale borough-wide housing, who were responsible for the family's accommodation, to fire their CEO, Gareth Swarbrick. In fact, they did initially stand by him. Why did it take them so long to act? That's a good question. And I think if you look at the anatomy of what happened in those four days, you might get a a clue as to what happened. So on on the day the coroner announces uh, that mould caused Arab's death, the chief executive says that he's truly devastated and he's upset about the things that we got wrong. There's a reaction then from the government. So Gove says that it beggars belief um, that he's still in post. MPs call for him to quit. Swarbrick digs his heels in at that point. The conversation around my position has begun to overshadow the most important part of all of this, which is that a family has lost their child. Having spoken to the board, I can confirm that I will not be resigning. They've given me their full backing and trust to continue to oversee the improvements and changes needed within RBH. And then finally, as you said, four days later, he was sacked. And that statement, sacking him, doesn't come from the board. It comes from the representative body, which includes the tenants' representatives and the board. And and what, why I think that's interesting is that the big push for reform in this area is about having tenants representing themselves in these housing organisations. And it was just interesting, I thought, that when it was finally sacked, that was a statement that came from the, the board that had the tenants on it. It seemed to me that there was a kind of realisation, finally, that actually this isn't all right with tenants. And Rob, this isn't just an issue in social housing, is it? There are people in similarly desperate conditions in the private rental market. That's why, right. Why is that? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's about 190,000 households in the private rented market who are also living with mould. And same issue, really. It's that there is very little incentive for um, landlords to uh, clear this stuff up. As you've said, there are tens of thousands of people living in dangerous, mouldy conditions in both the social and the private housing sector. And because of that, lots of people are suffering illness and bad health that is linked to those conditions. Now, you met Jane, who has endured an awful time. Can you tell me a bit about her? We're calling her Jane, but that's not her real name. Yeah, she has terminal lung illness as a result, she thinks, of damp and mould that has been plaguing her privately rented home for many years. She's a mother of two. Um, up until a you know, few years ago, she was healthy and successful working uh, mother. 
and and she may have as little as 18 months to live. Rob, you went to see Jane in her home. Hi. Yeah. I'm Rob. Yeah, come in. She wanted me to spray and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I Please have. do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and the photographer arrived, and the first thing when you go through the front door is that her carer uh, disinfected our shoes with a spray and then made sure we had alcohol gel on our hands because Jane is obviously very clinically vulnerable. Shall I go through? Yeah. Come on in. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, yeah? Yeah. Just sit here. We went through to her living room and there she was sat on a big chair with a blanket around her and two oxygen bottles next to her, an oxygen mask, a nasal catheter bringing oxygen into her because she has to have oxygen 24 hours a day. All right, because what it is, I've got an air filter sucking the air in through the vent out there. That way you're not in the same airstream as me. So I feel safe. Yeah. I feel confident, sorry. And all around were whirring these air purifying machines and dehumidifiers and the oxygen tanks themselves. And she was wheezing and she could say a few sentences and then would struggle a little bit. Um, and you, it was kind of a shocking sight to see what the impact of mould could actually be on someone yeah, right in front of your eyes. I've got it switched up to about 10. Otherwise I wouldn't be, I'd be passing I'm going to try out. the stairs. Yeah. I'm sorry, I won't take probably, my shoes off. No, don't worry, I probably won't be able to speak for a bit when we get up there, but... Sure. Uh, okay. <clears throat> Jane's house has been dry for a couple of years now, um, and so the mould problem isn't there. Yeah, like but she there. took me on a little tour of her house. You've got to understand, I've scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed these walls. So this, The entire wall was covered. This is covered with what? Mould. What colour? Black. Oh. Grey. And there's a bed here, so this is your son's... Was my son's room. So is that an external wall? Yeah. So was it the, the guttering, guttering there. that was causing the yeah. water to come in? And then there was a damage. Oh. <clears throat> it's a very mouldy room, this one. Yeah. Very sad that my son grew up in it, really. All right, his room now. How had the mould gotten so bad and how was she dealing with it? The house she was in, it had leaks like lots of houses do and black mold kept appearing on the walls she would talk to the landlord about it the landlord would recommend wiping it off which she did a lot the landlord would do some fixes but they were often temporary fixes and then the things would come back the problems would come back rob what has made her think that it was the mold that was to blame for her poor health well, in getting treatment for her lung disease, she's obviously been having scans. And she says the, the scans kind of look like there's sugar has been scattered in her lungs. The, the image on the CT scan is of, it looks like lots of little speckles. Most people's immune systems after chronic exposure to mold, which is what I had, start to disintegrate and people get cancers and they become they get infection after infection because their immune systems stop working properly. Yeah. I'm one of the smaller percentage that went the other way and my immune system overreacted. A little teeny mold spore will land. My immune system has correctly identified it as a threat, but it overreacts so much, it destroys everything. 
creating a little tiny scar, which is what all these little speckles are that you can see. And where there's scar tissue, the lung doesn't do its job. It can't process gases and oxygen. And so the capacity of her lungs slumped. Listening to this, it is still so unbelievable to me that in the UK, in 2022, we have people living in homes that can potentially kill them. How does Jane feel about what has happened to her? It's taken a real emotional toll on her. She's been ill for a long time um, with the chest problems. And she explained that she felt that it it inhibited her ability to be the mother that she wanted to be. And they've put up with so much because I got really ill, especially my son. Yeah, my son didn't really get the same mother that my daughter got. And I sort of failed it, really, because... you know, sometimes I couldn't get up for like two or three weeks at a time. And I'd come downstairs and he's eaten all the tins in the kitchen would be opened everywhere. And he's going up the corner shop and buying chips and marbles because I just wasn't up. You know, with a terminal diagnosis, she feels so, worried about their future as well and wants to make sure that they're OK and they're safe. And that's part of the motivation for um, bringing the legal action that she's bringing. explain the case that Jane is fighting to me and given that she is potentially terminally ill why is she spending her energy on it? She has a possibility of a lung transplant so there's hope for her and she remains optimistic about that and she is motivated to bring this personal injury claim against the landlord in the county court because she wants two things really she wants recompense and security for her family because it's giving my children a future financially yeah because obviously i've run through my savings but she also wants to set a precedent nationally by showing that if she's successful which is not a given that landlords can be held to account in the civil courts so because there's no legal precedent the insurance companies are prepared to spend millions of pounds making sure that there is no legal precedent so i'm probably one of the my case is probably one of the few cases that actually has a chance of going through and setting the precedent and you know such a judgment if there was a compensation award made that's substantial would be a a kind of warning shot if you like to landlords but also to their insurers as well Mm. if the if this case was successful it might bring about that sort of a change. At least that's what she hopes. Coming up. Will there be justice for Awab? Rob, to come back to Awab's tragic death that has forced national attention onto the problems with Maldi homes, can you tell me what's happening in the wake of that? Has there been a response from government on Awab's case? So uh, Awab's landlord is now under investigation by the Housing Ombudsman, which is the regulator for social housing, for systemic failures, mm. so not just in this case. Michael Gove has also announced that he's withdrawing a million pounds worth of capital funding from 
RBH, Rochdale Borough Wide Housing, and he's threatened to do something similar to other social landlords if they are found to be uh, you know, breaching their, their, their duties, really. Uh, if you can't even run the homes properly that you are currently responsible for, then you certainly can't be building new homes. And this money will be used across the country in order to build new homes. But Rochdale Borough Wide Housing, they're not getting it because they failed in this horrific case. And they've got to make sure that they are spending the money they've got effectively at the moment before we give them any more. You've got the regulator of social housing, another regulator, who's um, instructed all social landlords to provide their most recent assessment of damp and mould. So essentially a kind of audit across the whole country of what the actual hazards are to try and find out what the scale of the problem is really. Rob, where does all this leave our family? Is there any tangible route for justice for them? Well, they are very keen that it should change things. And they've come up with an idea for AWAB's law. The idea of that law was it would require social landlords to start work repairing properties within seven days if a doctor says that there's a risk to tenants' health. It would say that any bid for new social housing would be treated as a high priority if a medical professional has recommended that a tenant moves. And it would mandate social landlords to provide all tenants with information on their rights, how to make complaints, and the standards that they could expect, crucially in simple English. So this kind of law that would require social landlords to do more, react quicker, and you know communicate better with tenants would be part of a legacy that they'd be looking for. Rob, do you have any confidence that Awab's case could be a watershed moment? I think it certainly will make some difference. There's no doubt, is there, that if you're a a landlord now, you are going to be much more vigilant uh, because of the publicity about this case and the awfulness of it when it comes to tackling these sorts of problems, at least for a bit. The problem is, are we going to have structures in place that allow tenants to hold their landlords accountable when the circus has moved on. That's what the government needs to get on and do to bring in reforms that actually make it possible for tenants to really have their voices heard and for them to be safe. Rob, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Rob Booth. My thanks to him and to Jane. You can read Rob's piece on this story and more at theguardian.com. In response to Jane's allegations, her landlord's lawyer has said, we declined to comment during the course of ongoing litigation. Finally, to hear more from me and Michael Safi on the stories that made 2022, Today in Focus is going live on Wednesday, the 30th of November, and you're invited. Tickets are on sale now. The event is live streamed from 8pm to 9.15pm. Head to theguardian.com forward slash Today in Focus Live for more info. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Khatena. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Huma Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. The Guardian.